one of the greatest inventions in history doesn't really have a name. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the opposite of real time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, this is Morgan Michael. This isn't a pitch and it's not an ad. It's kind of an ask. What if in this really tumultuous and uncertain time, we looked to each other and committed ourselves to doing something kind, to making a generous connection, to texting five friends we haven't talked to in such a long time. Just that, just that humanity reaching out. It'll make you feel better. And I promise you this, there's a ripple effect with that kindness. A small act can make a really big impact. 10,000 years ago, everything happened in real time. It unfolded right before our eyes. Perhaps the only exception were stories told around the campfire. But even those were delivered to us by someone else in real time. Try to imagine sitting and watching someone write a book or even type a three-page memo. The rehashes, the backspaces, the spell checking, sitting there waiting word by word for them to finish the memo. This seems crazy. We read a memo when it's done. We watch a movie after it's edited. That the shift from real time to asynchronous communication is so important and yet so invisible that we need to talk about it. We've talked about it before, and we'll probably talk about it again. But it keeps interfering. But it keeps making a difference in our lives. So let's go back a thousand years or so. As we shifted to writing, something extraordinary occurred, which is that every human who had proximity and skill to engage with writing benefited from all the people who had come before. Not just libraries, but things like accounting, things like ledgers, understanding who owns which piece of property, the technology involved in doing something, whether it's starting a fire or building a building. If we could write it down, we could amplify it. If we could write it down, we could improve it. And if we could write it down, we could spread it. So writing transformed humanity more than just about anything else and is the difference between us and every other species on Earth is that the beavers figure out how to build a dam, partly from instinct and partly from community. But if one beaver has a breakthrough and comes up with an even better way to make a dam, that insight dies with that beaver. That's not the case with humans. That humans, thanks to the asynchronous idea of writing, are able to compound their innovation and to build networks and communities. And so for hundreds of years, writing was it. And then we expanded it across time and space by adding stamps. So now it's not just the writing that is in your local library, but you could take your writing and send it to someone else, and they would read it when they got around to it. 
and they could save what you wrote and refer to it later, and they could write back. And so we were living in this asynchronous world, the opposite, I guess, of real time. And then, then comes something like the telegram. But the telegram is nothing but a letter that goes faster. The telephone is where we really see a shift happen. Because when you call someone else on the phone, it doesn't work unless they answer. Inventing the ringing phone, just the concept of a thing that would ring and require your immediate attention was a breakthrough. We didn't know what to say when we answered the phone. Alexander Graham Bell was going to say, ahoy, as the word we would use. But instead, the day was saved when Thomas Edison suggested maybe hello which didn't mean what it used to mean. So now we got the telephone, that synchronized conversation back to real time. And then radio shows up. And radio is a hybrid because at the beginning, radio was live, all live, all the time. You had live actors doing live plays. You had live DJs introducing live musicians playing live music. If you missed it, it was gone. But then, thanks to Edison, We had recordings, and they came out of the radio in real time. So if you were listening, you heard the new hit, and if you weren't, you didn't. But the DJ, the DJ was live. And then when we got to television, even more of this was going on. A show was on once and only once, but it was recorded. It was edited. As we developed from film, again, Edison and others, this idea was that we weren't going to watch somebody painstakingly edit a movie for 200 days, we were going to wait till they were done. And lots of what we think about as culture from the 20th century including Frampton Comes Alive, which was edited, of course, wasn't actually live in real time. It was the work of painstaking editing that happened back and forth, asynchronously. And after it was created, we could watch it when we wanted to watch it. While this asynchronous revolution is going on, we still got school. And school, school more than we realize, is a huge expenditure of effort and money to occur in real time. The teacher teaches when the teacher teaches. Butts in seats. The test is scheduled for a certain time. Yes, You can do your homework when you need to, but you have to hand it in when everybody else hands it in. And then the internet shows up and it begins with email. Email, asynchronous. Sure, it might get there pretty quickly, but there was no expectation that someone was going to write back instantly. And then texting. Texting, like a phone call, but lower tech. Texting took off, partly because there's a perception that texting doesn't happen asynchronously. You write to someone, and they are supposed to write right back. It is supposed to be a faster version of a phone call, not a shorter version of an email. We put it back into real time. Slack has that annoying little thing at the bottom. So-and-so is typing. Well, if I've just put in a DM in Slack and I see Sam is typing, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for Sam to finish typing. We pushed it because everything kept getting faster and faster from asynchronous 
the idea that we decide when we're going to consume something to synchronized, to real time, because anything might happen. And it's that desire to see the breaking news that drives people to look at Twitter instead of to read a history book. It may be that understanding what happened two years ago is more important than understanding what someone had for breakfast two minutes ago, but we're drawn to it. We're drawn to the real time thing because that is what we evolved through, 10,000 years of everything happening in real time. So you are listening to this podcast, but you are not listening to it while I am sitting in the shower of my office recording it in the middle of 2021. That would be weird. You understand that a podcast gets edited. And the beauty of it is you don't have to listen to it the minute it gets published. It's not Thursday night at 8 o'clock on NBC in 1981. It's sitting there in the queue. And if you want to listen to it sped up, there's a button for that. If you want to go back and re-listen to part of it, there's a way to do that. If you want to tell people your three favorite episodes and which three to ignore, that's easy to do. It's asynchronous. And then here comes Clubhouse, which is mysteriously popular among a certain group of people. The main reason, it's live. The main reason is juxtapositions are happening. The main reason is something might happen that no one expects that can't get easily erased. It somehow feels more authentic. Of course, it's not. It's simply more inefficient because you have to listen for hours and hours in order to find something that you want to talk about. And one of the things you're going to do when you talk about it is you're going to say to people, you missed it. You had to be there. If I may, to address myself to four very special people, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, the Beatles. Lately, there have been a lot of rumors to the effect that the four of you might be getting back together. That would be great. In my book, the Beatles are the best thing that ever happened to music. It goes even deeper than that. You're not just a musical group, you're a part of us. We grew up with you. It's for this reason that I'm inviting you to come on our show. <laughs> now, we've heard and read a lot about personality and legal conflicts that might prevent you guys from reuniting. That's something which is none of my business. You guys will have to handle that. But it's also been said that no one has yet to come up with enough money to satisfy you. Well, if it's money you want, there's no problem here. The National Broadcasting Company has authorized me to offer you a certified check for $3,000. Here it is. Can we, can we uh, get a close-up of this, Dave? Which camera is it on? Ah. Move in there. Now, here it is, as you can see, verifiably, it is a check made out to you, the Beatles, for $3,000. All you have to do is sing three Beatle tunes. She loves you, yeah, 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 that's $1,000 right there. You know the words, it'll be easy. Like I said, this is made out, this check here is made out to the Beatles. You divide it any way you want. You want to give Ringo less, that's up to you. I'd rather not get involved. I'm sincere about this. If it uh, helps you to reach a decision to reunite, well then, it's a worth the investment. Back in the days when Saturday Night Live was live, when people watched it on Saturday night, a big part of the draw at the beginning was anything could happen. People put up with mediocre sketches that lasted way too long because it was live. It felt live. And through the years, 
people, particularly since they associate television and YouTube with something that's been pre-recorded, have lost that magic feeling of live. I remember when Lauren Michael came out in the 70s and he had a check for $3,000 and he offered the Beatles a chance to have a reunion on Saturday Night Live. Part of the magic of it, besides the absurdity of only offering the Beatles $3,000, was that maybe, just maybe, they'd surprise us. Maybe, just maybe, they'd show up. And so next week, we tuned in because that's the sort of thing that could have happened live. So all of this is a warm-up for the best part of the rant, which is Zoom. Here's what I want to understand. Why isn't it malpractice for someone to call a Zoom meeting and talk at other people in real time? What an astonishing waste. It's like watching someone type a book. It's like watching someone record a podcast. If you've got something to say to your team, record it. Put it on Vimeo. Put it on YouTube. Instruct the people, because you have power and authority, to watch it. Let them watch it sped up. Let them watch it twice. Let them watch it when it works for their schedule. Let them watch it and discuss it with others. But why are we wasting the juicy magic of synchronized real-time experience so that you can be uncomfortable live in front of a bunch of people who are uncomfortable watching you pontificate? It doesn't make any sense at all. Why is it okay for a classroom that's running on Zoom to involve a teacher lecturing to the class for 40 minutes. This makes absolutely no sense. Find one teacher, someone who's really good at it, and have them record the best 40-minute lecture ever recorded on the origins of the War of 1812. And then let everybody else watch it when they want to watch it. The beauty of a Zoom call is not that it gives one person a chance to talk for a long time because they have power. The beauty of it is if we're going to do it in real time, let's make it a conversation. Let's have something going on that unfolds in a way that we cannot predict. Because if it's a memo, send a memo. Don't have the meeting. It's too expensive. It enervates us. It wipes us out. We have wasted this chunk of time forcing things that should happen asynchronously into real time, just because it's convenient, just because it's become the standard. We have to stop. That the opportunity as we blow up space and time in our post-office world is to realize that asynchronicity, the idea of mutual inspection, of doing it when we want to do it, of watching it twice, of improving it, of editing it, all of those things are more effective higher utility, more productive than let's do it live. Let's do it live has its place. It's magic. It makes us feel alive. But as soon as we turn it into a lever for command and control, we've wasted all of it. Thanks for listening. You can listen to previous episodes anytime you want. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with three questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp, 
that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or anything previous, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, you can check out the show notes. Three varied questions this week. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Cal coming to you from the UK. And my question comes after I had not listened to your podcast for a while. And so I was jumping around to random episodes, catching up on them. And I happened to listen to the externalities and money as a story episodes back to back. And in externalities, you talk about this idea of a carbon dividend where there's a carbon baseline established and those who go over it have to pay money while those who stay under it will get paid as a reward for for staying under the, the carbon baseline. But then in the Money is a Story episode, you talk about this story of the child care center where in order to prevent parents from being late to pick up their children, they introduced a fee that the parents would have to pay based on how late they were. And in this case, the plan backfired because as, you know, this thing that was once under a social contract now became transactional. And so actually more parents started showing up late. So my question is, how do we square these two ideas? And wouldn't a carbon dividend also make this transactional and give license to those emitting massive amounts of carbon to pay some money and carry on as before? Anyway, thanks for all you do and hope you have a great 2022. Thank you for this, Cal. On the surface, they do seem related, but they couldn't be more different. And here's why. In the case of the Israeli daycare center, there's an enormous amount of social pressure to treat the people who are taking care of your kids fairly. And when you show up a few minutes late, the look in their eye, the knowledge that tomorrow they're going to be taking care of your kids again, this is a powerful disincentive to show up late. On the other hand, when you say to people, it's $30 an hour, then you're saying even Steven. And so it undid social pressure. In the case of carbon, the opposite has happened. For 150 years, because energy has been so cheap, pumping it out of the ground has been cheap, we have created a status umbrella that people of means, of privilege, can use to show that they are somehow ahead of other people. So a private jet is better than a regular jet, which is better than a car, which is better than a bus, which is better than walking. And so building a huge home that's built from concrete that wastes a lot of energy, 
simply having a front door that doesn't have a storm door in front of it. All of these are elements of our culture where wasting power was seen as a good thing to do. There is no social cost to standing at the doorway when your guests are leaving the house with the door slightly ajar saying that long goodbye. If we put into place a pricing regime that appropriately and fairly prices how much burning carbon costs all of us, some people will still flaunt how much carbon they are burning, for sure. But, and it's the huge but that makes the whole thing work, the problem we have with carbon and climate is not caused by one or two or 10 or 15 people who don't recycle or who are wasting a little bit. It's caused by massive industrial entities that are building coal plants or that are producing billions of plastic bottles. And what happens is they are really focused on the bottom line. They don't make all of those bottles because they want to. They do it because they make a profit doing it. So you don't need very many people saying, wait, I'm not going to buy that anymore because the extra dollar it costs me, just not worth it. You don't need many people to take that point of view for a big company to decide this isn't worth it for us either. And so this massive shift starts happening. It happens, yes, from the bottom of the pyramid where there are millions and millions of individuals, but also at the top where there are giant industrial entities, many of them public companies, that will make different decisions that will have an impact for all of us. Hi, Seth. I'm Aldo, a young student from Naples in Italy. I decided a short while ago that I would write a book. And halfway through writing it, I realized that it could have been just as effective as a newsletter or as a series of blog posts or as a series of screenplays for a hypothetical YouTube channel or just really anything. So my question is, once you know that there are some people that would be happy to receive your message and that this message is relevant and could make a change in some people's lives, does it really matter what kind of media you decide to send your message through? Does it really matter if it is a book or it is a blog? Thanks for this, Aldo. I think about this all the time. I only write a book when I have no choice. It's so much easier, more efficient, and more effective for me to spread an idea with a blog post. It will reach between 10 and 30 times as many people, and I can write it in one two hundredth of the amount of time. What makes something worth putting on a podcast instead of being in a book or a blog post or just mentioning over dinner? So your point was they both accomplish the same goal. Well, I'm not sure that part's true. It depends on what we're seeking to accomplish. A book is a signal. It's a signal to you and to the reader. It says, I decided to spend a year of my life on this. I decided this was an idea worth $20, not something free. I decided it was worth having it spread slowly, but perhaps be more sticky. So I don't think everyone should write a book. I think everyone should write. I think everyone should clarify their ideas. I think everyone should create a record of their work. We had to be really clear about what it's for and who it's for. And particularly now in 2022, it's less and less likely that the answer to any of these questions is write a book. It used to be 20 years ago, 
but it might not be today. Pick the medium that fits your goal. The third question comes to us from an anonymous source who didn't call it in. It was somebody who I know, a colleague and friend, who just got a big book deal and in the midst of working on the book was feeling really stuck. And we had a conversation about this the other day. And they said, the hardest part is sitting in a room by oneself, imagining that there's somebody on the other end and trying to figure out how to write to them in a way that works. And my suggestion to them was pretty simple, which is go find a few people, maybe even pay them if you need to, to join you on a Zoom call and figure out the point you are trying to make. Obviously, this works much better for nonfiction than fiction and explain it to them. Record the whole thing, but while you're explaining it to them, look them in the eye. See who is looking away. See who is leaning into what you are saying. Figure out how to say what you need to say, which stories you need to tell, which points you need to make to keep their attention, to capture their energy, and to help them get to where they seek to go. Because if you can't do it in a five-minute Zoom call, you probably can't do it in 15 pages of prose. But if you can, then you can go ahead and take that recording, have it transcribed, and then rewrite it so that it works in book format. It seems like such a simple plan, but it's difficult for a lot of people because looking someone in the eye while you are sharing an idea is way more scary than simply plopping down in front of a keyboard and typing. But that's scary as well because we know that at some point in the future, someone might pick it up and they might pick it up when it's too late for us to change what we said. And so we're constantly dancing between this synchronized conversation that humans evolved to be good at and this asynchronized modern post-Gutenberg idea that you write something down or you record a podcast and then one day in the distant future, someone opens the time capsule and that's all you got, one shot to tell them what it is you came to talk about. Anyway, that's my rant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more 
at altmba.com.